in Houston. I'm John Herter. It's Tuesday, the third day of May. Great as always to have you along, everybody. In a nutshell, From the Experts is a virtual networking accelerator helping people across industries connect very quickly in a brief, moderated, interactive show format. We're like a TED Talk with interactive discussion. So what's in it for you? The promise of everything goes well, your curiosity sparked, new ideas accelerate action, and you may have helped yourself or somebody else solve a problem, make a connection, reaching the opportunity faster. We know making authentic connections and expanding networks has never been more important to your business. Thanks to our underwriters for transforming the FT Vision network and community into action. Unique Ventures, Alliance Benefit Group, IntraPoint, Ecosystems 2030, Canon Community. Each expert's in their field, Connect with them and learn more at ft.network. You'll be glad that you did. Folks, help me welcome guest expert Marianne Ka. Marianne is adjunct senior research scholar and member of the advisory board at Columbia University Center on Global Energy Policy. She's also independent director for companies PGS, Allegheny Technologies, and the Houston Grand Opera. But I got to know Marianne as chief economic uh, sorry, Chief Economist at ConocoPhillips, where she served in that role for about 25 years. No doubt she's in the who's who of international energy experts, participating in forums and conferences, and many of the U.S. energy policy studies. Amazing and accomplished lady, please be sure to connect with her. So Marianne, framing this discussion, the Energy Transition Balancing Act is uh, daunting, let alone trying to do this in 45 minutes. But you and I, right? We kind of agreed early on that our big idea wasn't to try to get this right, but to share and to have open discussion that could spark new ideas, connections, and everybody's ability to take some positive action in this. I've really enjoyed this process, and I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what you say and you know what our group does today. Marianne? Great. So I wanted to talk about the energy transition today, and we're calling it a balancing act because it really is. How do you balance energy security and affordability versus climate? So I'm going to get to that. But first, I want to define the energy transition. And Gus, could you bring my slide up? Everybody has a different definition of the energy transition. So what is an energy transition? This chart goes back to 1800, and it's showing you the different fuel mixes that we've had over the years and how long it took for these different fuels to become the prominent fuel. So if you look at biomass, it took 100 years before it wasn't the prominent fuel and coal took over. It took coal 70 years to become the prominent fuel. You know, it took oil 70 years to become prominent and natural gas is still not the prominent fuel, but it's been rising for 100 years. So that's the important context to talk about energy transition. So the next slide, please, Gus. So this, this is a way of looking at the current energy transition. The, the slide on the right is the International Energy Agency's reference scenario or the stated policy scenario. And it shows you that the expectation is that renewables is going to increase, not precipitously, but uh, at a fairly rapid rate. Oil and coal will decline, oil moderately, and natural gas is basically flat. But if you really want to get to net zero 2050, which means there's a 50% chance of getting one and a half degrees centigrade warming or lower, 
you, you have to go to the left-hand slide. That, this is what's needed. Notice the precipitous increase in renewables. Uh, notice that oil and coal are declining precipitously, as is natural gas, but oil and coal need to start declining like already yesterday. It's already, they're already late. And this happens within 30 years, not 100 years. So this is the huge size of the challenge we have. If we can go to the next slide, please. Um, Marianne, will we get some of the slides? You can have them, yes, absolutely. Please. Thank you. Okay, so if you look at what um, global energy-related CO2 emissions look like back to 1990, uh, you can see that they've been rising mostly the whole time, although there was a period where they were um, slightly flat, as particularly in the US as natural gas started taking over and backing out coal. And then I'm showing you that dot of what the stated policy scenario that I talked about before, what that looks like in 2030. So there's an expectation that is gonna to continue to rise. But now I'm showing you the blue star and the red star showing you, what you where you need to be in 2030 and 2040 respectively to get on that net zero emissions curve. And you clearly need to be so much lower that it, it's, it looks like an impossible task. Can we actually get there? We're obviously not on the trajectory now. And the question is, can we have enough policy incentives and economic incentives to be able to move that way? So I would say that you know, the world really is not being effective in getting there. So let me talk now about, no more slides, what needs to go right to move to this net zero 50 pathway? Probably the most important thing is coherent government policy. It's strong and consistent across the globe to drive the world's economies off of fossil fuels and onto lower carbon energy sources, um, remove carbon from the, the air and increase energy efficiency. Um, and it's, we're not really moving that way right now, certainly not in the US. For example, the US has yet to agree to President Biden's um, Build Back Better plan that has some climate um, policies in it. The US is actually now encouraging greater oil production because of the Ukraine crisis. And it's, it drew down the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, all in the name of lowering gasoline prices. And that's the last thing you want to do in this environment if you want to move to net zero 50. In fact, we should have taken advantage of these high gasoline prices as a way of getting people to move to electric vehicles, for example. But we're doing just the opposite because politicians you know, worry about getting elected and people don't like high gasoline prices. Now, I'm not just saying that we raise the price and a lot of people can't afford it. I think it needs to go with low income uh, transfers for people who really can't afford to pay these higher prices. Another thing we need to get right is the enormous amount of um, cap capital that needs to go into new energy infrastructure. Um, investment in clean energy would have to triple by 2030 if you look at the IEA's net zero 2050 scenario. Governments need to create the right incentives to be able to make clean investments, like a carbon price, for example, might be helpful. Although in certain sectors like the transportation sector, the carbon price would have to be so high that that probably is not the best way to get there. Probably regulation would be a lower cost uh, opportunity. Governments also need to subsidize investment in lower carbon fuels. And a specific problem in advanced economies and the US in particular is the inability to permit new infrastructure. I'm thinking transition lines, pipelines, you know, if you want a new hydrogen system, it's just very hard to get that done. 
Even in Texas, it's gotten really hard to permit intrastate pipelines in Texas. Ranchers just don't want pipelines on their land. And given the size of the investment required, one worries about developing countries who don't have the capital. And also they're more worried about buying the conventional fuels to all their citizens who don't even have access to any kind of um, decent energy resource. They don't have access to electricity. So it looks like the developed world will have to help them. And thus far, they really have not been forthcoming with lots of money. Also needed are breakthroughs in technology, energy technology and the reduction in cost of sequestering carbon. You know, if you look at the IEA scenario, net zero, almost 50% of the emissions reductions by 2050 are gonna to have to come from technologies that don't even exist today, which I'll come back to. Uh, we need more sustainable and diverse metal supply chains. People are just starting to become aware of that. Uh, renewable power sources use metals like wind and solar. And of course there are battery metals. Um, these are concentrated in, in some countries that human resource challenges are an issue, like child labor in, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And China owns a large portion of the minerals in um, certain battery metals, for example, cobalt. Um, not only do they own the resource, but they also are doing the refining. So President Biden has acknowledged this finally and trying to build a battery supply chain in the U.S., but it's difficult and, and the mining part is gonna be the most difficult part. Nobody wants mines near them. And that's even true for places like Chile and in places in Eastern Europe, we've seen protests about new mines. But all is not negative. There's a huge amount of opportunities and businesses that can come out of this transition. New technologies have to be developed and commercialized. Uh, solutions for dealing with the intermittency of renewable fuel. We need some sort of storage system and storage that lasts more than three hours or overnight. There are seasons where the wind stops blowing. So you need to be able to deal with that. A lot of progress has been already made in lowering battery costs, but they need to come down even more. And probably the biggest issue right now is the cost of the minerals rising. Uh, you also need to extend the range of them and reduce the charging time so they truly are competitive with conventional vehicles and people want to buy them. I already mentioned the cost of carbon capture and storage or utilization needs to be reduced and dealing with the myriad of legal and regulatory issues to be able to do this at scale. Yes, we have lots of projects going on in this space, but we have to do it at a much larger scale. Now, some environmental groups are against doing carbon capture, because they think it will, it will keep fossil fuels running longer. But my issue is I can think of no net zero scenario that doesn't have a lot of carbon capture in it. You're going to have to do that no matter what. And finally, another big one is developing green hydrogen, electrolyzing water, using a renewable uh, power source to do that. It's going to be a very important way to decarbonize fuel, particularly in heavy industry or industries where it's hard to uh, decarbonize and expensive. There's also a lot of act action that needs to take place in the oil and gas industry. Reducing methane leakage is one of the biggest ways to reduce uh, global warming the fastest uh, because, global, because methane has such a high global warming potential. 
you take that out of the air and you quickly get changed. So that's, that's actually an exciting opportunity. We just need to make it happen. And not just in the United States, it needs to happen in places like Russia and other places which are far worse in terms of leakage. Flaring of natural gas is another thing that we need to do. And of course, electrifying vehicles and buildings and improving the efficiency of appliances and industrial processes. All of these things need to happen. And also increasing recycling of materials. A lot of the oil demand growth is for plastics. So if you could recycle plastics, you would not need as much um, crude to be produced. Also battery metals recycling is gonna be really important given, given the supply chain issues and particularly for the mining of the minerals like nickel and cobalt and lithium. So I'm, I'm gonna come back to that final question I started with, how do we maintain energy affordability and security during the transition. One important question is, you know, the number of governments have been focused on decarbonization. I'm afraid they've really lost sight of the energy security challenges we have. And the, the issue is energy security and high prices will trump decarbonization. So there's a threat that is going to create, um, crater all decarbonization efforts if governments don't pay equal attention to energy security. This issue, of course, has come to the fore during the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the expected, we haven't even seen Russian oil production go down yet, it's just starting to. And it's mostly been taken offline due to boycotts and sanctions. So it is going to get worse. Um, the first question actually I have is from a major security event like the Russian invasion of Ukraine, does it help or hurt the energy transition? I would have thought that the higher fuel prices and the insecurity of supply would get people to shift towards electric vehicles. But I mentioned earlier the disappointment that governments are adopting policies that actually reduce energy prices and squander the opportunity to accelerate the transition. Another issue is how do you, how do you improve clean energy access in developing countries? Uh, there's a growing view that advanced countries need to reduce their use of these fuels, conventional fossil fuels, even more to allow room for the developing countries to use them just to get their people developed before and also before they can afford to um, go to cleaner fuels. Another issue we're dealing with today is how do we deal with underinvestment in the conventional fuels? Because there's a, you know, partly because of re, very low profitability for the last 10 years, investors don't want to invest in oil and gas. And the oil and gas industry has to sort of bribe them with higher dividends and share buybacks. Part of it is the perception that oil demand is going away quickly, so you don't need to invest in these fuels. Well, I, I don't think that's true, and I've done a lot of modeling of oil demand. I, I don't see a peak before 2030, just because of the long time it takes to shift over vehicle fleets, buildings, et cetera. So how do you, how do you get these, this industry to spend enough money when they're transitioning out? I think that's a problem that governments really need to figure out. And finally, how do we improve the resilience of our energy systems? COVID insecurity events like Russia, um, there's a the tendency for countries like the US to focus on building our own domestic supply chains. And while inefficient, you could understand why that makes sense. And this is not just for energy, it's across you know, uh, chips and, and, and all kinds of um, supply chains. 
Plus, as the world becomes more dependent on electrification, we need to make sure there's sufficient low carbon capacity that's dispatchable. And what I mean by that is wind and solar aren't dispatchable in the sense that they run when the wind and, sol and the sun is out. You need to have a low carbon source. Maybe it's nuclear or maybe it's gas with carbon capture and storage that can run anytime you have the demand. In fact, I remember what happened in Texas, in Houston last February, we had that big freeze. It turns out that most of the infrastructure from the power plants to the pipelines to the wells, none of it was, was insulated, which brings me to my next point in that you have to weatherize things and adapt because climate change is clearly happening. And finally, we need to make sure our infrastructure is resistant to cyber attacks, which um, we're all expecting to see more coming out of Russia uh, these days. So let me stop there. And um, where would you like to go next with this, John? Well, I think we've got lots of questions out there. Oh, good. So I welcome uh, anybody to uh, put out their question right now verbally. You can put it in the chat. Anything that you heard that Marianne talked about that uh, you have some input on, now's a great time to, to uh, jump on in. You know, as people are coming forward, you know, I guess, is the global energy transition actually coming along to plan, Marianne? What's your take? Well, it, it, it certainly isn't. I mean, in some in, in Europe, I would say it's, it's more likely, it's moving in the right direction faster. It certainly is not in the US though, because we can't even agree on the Build Back Better plan. So no, I mean, it's, it's not happening terribly here. And yeah. you know, investors have to invest in things like carbon capture in the hope that they're going to renew the 45Q, for example, investment tax credit for CCS. And I think it will, because I think that particular element has bipartisan support. Perfect. Questions, folks? You know, Marianne, it's 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 maybe a a question on. You know, it, it seems like on the one side we're living in a fantasy world that we will get to net zero by twenty fifty. Uh, that's on the one side. I do take note of your these technologies that we know that don't exist today. On the other side, you know, I don't see any alignment and practical plans on the table from. You know, either governments or even you know, super majors has got intentional to reduce, and uh, they're really looking at how to do that. But it seems like this void of you know fantasy world existing that we're going to get there by chance. How do we bridge that gap? You know, because there's education on the one side. You know, if I look at the you know EIA forecast, you know, 20 million barrels of energy required by 2050. With already kind of the impacts of, you know, looking at the renewables, uh, you know, electrical vehicles and all of that incorporated. And then renewables only at this current forecast and the best scenario is making up 3 million. You sit with a gap of 17 to 18 million barrels and no think, clear pathway how to, to fill that gap. How, how do we do that? Yeah. Well, I, th I think one of the things that needs to happen is governments really do need, need to play a role in educating people on what the challenge is, how large the challenge is, and what needs to happen. And they're not doing that now. They're just sort of taking these you know, virt virtual targets and not explaining really how difficult it is to meet those. People need to understand that. And I also think 
people like everyone on this call needs to be more politically active. You know, when was the last time you wrote to your senator and told him, I'm, I'm assuming for the US, but you know, this is true in every country. You yeah. need, you know, people, I think congressmen and politicians actually do listen to people. So I think we need to have more correspondence with them. And particularly what worries me is I keep reading that the young people have become politically exhausted and just not involved anymore. And I'd love someone who's younger than me to challenge that on this call, but um, I, that's really what needs to happen. Because if you look at surveys, the younger people are, are much more concerned about the impacts of climate change than the older people, because they're gonna have to live with this for you know, the rest of their lives. So they need to become more active and, and write to their politicians, join organizations, et cetera. But, but Mary, right. and, and, and maybe a follow-up on. Hey, Nico, hang on. Let's, we got to have to keep on moving on. I'm sorry. So we have another question from Scott, and uh, he says, hey, could you please address the carbon credit market and what kind of role this can play in creating incentives? I'm, I'm, I'm a, being an economist, I'm a big believer in markets. So I think it will eventually play a very important role. Right now, there's, there's no one central market, and there's a lot of suspicion about the dishonesty of it. So those things need to be fixed before it can become more effective, but I think it is gonna be a very important tool. It's also controversial. Environmental groups don't like the carbon credit market. They want people to actually physically reduce their emissions. They want caps, hard caps. So, you know, it doesn't come without controversy. I guess is my only point, but I'm a believer in it. Right. What about um, this uh, topic of weatherization? Julia says, how much would weatherization insulation actually contribute to energy security? Does it reduce energy demand in a significant way? I mean, if, if everyone did it, certainly it would. But I think the most important thing about it is for the low income people who can't afford the prices. I mean, it's, it's critical that they be able to do this. And then that's their way of contributing to lowering emissions. Um, you have an issue because a lot of them are renters and are not owners. So we need, we need to figure out how the government can subsidize people to improve their energy position. And it's really more of a, you know, an income uh, equi equity issue than anything else. But yes, it also would help if everyone did that. You know, small things add up to very large numbers. Right. Thank you. So, uh, Terrell, are you there? I know that you're working with a, a firm that uh, is helping companies trying to overcome uh, and get more engaged in this uh, effort. Could you say a few words if you got them? Sure. <clears throat> so excuse me, right when you asked the question, I was just finishing a fantastic quesadilla here in Houston. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm not jealous. I'm actually leaving for Houston in an hour. <laughs> oh, oh, that's fantastic. What, what are you seeing, Terrell? So I'm one of the partners in Green Star BCS, and the BCS stands for Beyond Carbon Solutions. And so we're a new privately held company. And we are zippering, if you will, the reality of, you know, the industries that all of us have enjoyed long careers in oil and gas, upstream, midstream, downstream, petroleum and chemicals. So that's like one side of the H and the other side of the H is energy transition. And the bar in between is how do we sort of zipper these two so that there's practical solutions? So yeah, we're assisting 
assisting companies in making those energy transition initiatives. Um, we're seeing companies moving forward quickly. They're not worried about inflation hindering their efforts. They're really focused on what can they do. There's a lot of focus on other parts of the world, whether it's Russia, Ukraine, whether it's you know global economies, domestic economies, but companies are still moving forward in these initiatives. Um, haven't ever had an engagement or a project with any governmental entity. And I do happen to be one of those who believe that all the new innovation, all the new technologies, all the positive movements in the physical transition of assets, that'll come from industry. That'll come from companies that own those facilities. Right. Um, so, okay. I mean, to me, the government role is how do you incentivize private industry to make these investments on a much larger scale than is happening today? Yeah. And it's, you know, it, it isn't obvious because, well, it's a huge amount of money, obviously. So I think we have to be willing to spend a large portion of our GDP doing this if we're serious about, about making this transition. Yeah, I think right. the tricky, just one last thing, the tricky role is how industry can educate government. Um, I remember I was taking the Acela from New York to Washington, D.C. and happened to sit right next or a U.S. senator sat next to me, talked about legislation they were pushing through, which would uh, lessen the regulation for crude by rail because it's safe. And he asked my opinion. And lo and behold, I saw some legislation change because of that three-hour educational moment. Right. And, and part, of the, the, part of the issue the oil and gas industry has is the lack of credibility in Washington because they haven't moved fast enough to reduce methane emissions and flaring. So that, that is a challenge. How, you know, maybe you need third parties to, you know, that's one of the reasons why I joined Columbia, because people right. in Washington listen to us where they don't, if I was still in the oil industry, they may not listen to me. No, good point. So I want to go back to where we were, you were asking uh, the younger generation, you know, hey, you guys need to do more, you know. And so Julia says, hey, from her experience, a lot of young people are politically active, but feel some resentment and exhaustion due to lack of concrete, progressive climate policy. Um, I'd ask uh, maybe Hillary, you've got something to add to that, or uh, Nick, I don't know what your experience is. Or Julia, you can follow up on that. So the, I just want to add that, Julie, I don't blame you for feeling that way because it has been, it's like beating your head against the wall in the U.S. Um, it's just, there's no progress. And um, I'm not sure what it takes, but I think the you know, statistics show that as the younger generations become more and more the voter populace, the views are different. And I think things will change. It's just not happening fast enough. And then we uh, uh, we had um, sorry. There's Jennifer. What's the best lesson learned that we can actually apply from the European success, given the political economic realities that we're facing here? What's your experience there, Marianne? Oh, you're talking to me. I thought you were talking to Jennifer. <laughs> no, 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 I, I, no. Actually, I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned from Europe. One very interesting one to me is that every time oil and gas prices have dropped, 
Europe has increased its taxes on oil and gas. So oil and gas is much more expensive to Europeans than it is to people in the US. And they don't buy as many SUVs. They buy much smaller cars. I mean, you could actually see a behavioral difference because of the way pricing works. So that's number one. I think that's the biggest difference. And there, there seems to be less of um, a chasm of views. Everyone seems to be united about um, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Now, when it comes to paying for it, you, you get into lots of you know, arguments between the uh, countries in the EU, EU, but at least they're all in agreement on the goals. We don't have that agreement in the US, and I think that's a big problem. But I think we will get that agreement as the, the younger generations become a much, much greater percent of the uh, voting populace. It's just moving too slowly. Got it. Any follow-up on that, uh, Jennifer? Jennifer, you're muted. Um, uh, I guess the next slide is you, you, you talked about sort of like a more greater homogeneity of outlook. And earlier in the conversation, you had mentioned that we need to do an education to get people aligned. Can you look at a corollary where the United States did an outreach to change public sentiment where it worked well? Interesting question. I guess wars. <laughs> You know, when I, now think about World War II and how we, ran, you know, Def Defense Production Act, how we were able to build all that metal stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, so we know that the country is capable of it when views are aligned. And it didn't take much of the government to get people aligned against the enemy. How, you know, how do you do that in a non-military sense? I mean, you're now seeing people aligning against Russia, but that doesn't help you in climate change. So. That is a tough one. I, I wish I knew the answer to that, Jennifer. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Rosalind, would you mind uh, talking a little bit about what you're doing? I know you're in South Africa. Uh, you've done a lot of uh, uh, different work. I see that you're currently with this company called Impact. If you're there, could you share a little bit about uh, some of the uh, packaging and, and uh, work that you're doing there? Sure. Uh, my apologies to everyone. It's 7 p.m. in South Africa. So literally having dinner while I listen in. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so I work for Impact. It's the largest um, uh, paper packaging and recycling company in South Africa. Um, not the largest paper company. We've got Mondi and Sapi that you might know from the European markets, um, but not too many American players. Um, we make uh, paper-based packaging, uh, corrugated boxes, um, plastics for FMCG companies like Unilever. Um, we supply some of the Coca-Cola company. And we're also the largest recycler in South Africa. Um, I also um, am one of the future energy leaders of the World Energy Council, which is, I think, um, how John found me and um, why he was, was interested. So I can talk about transition. Um, I can talk about energy security in South Africa, but I can also just answer um, on packaging. Um, I know it's not this way in every state in, in America, but um, quite widely in South Africa, we're driving the principles of the circular economy. Um, and there's a big push for enhanced producer recycling. We've already got pretty good recycling rates. Um, we're sort of 70, 80% for paper, uh, similar for glass. Plastics is obviously a little bit of a mixed bag, 
Um, we've got some interesting expanded polystyrene projects in terms of construction and bricks that are happening in the industry association. Um, we recently had to close down our recycled PET plants. Now there's only one in South Africa. So it's uh, interesting uh, thoughts about how Coca-Cola is going to meet their 25% their RPET targets in, um, in bottles. Um, but the other competitor, um, Extra Pets, uh, ramping up their plant, they're investing at the moment. Um, we also have quite a lot of polyprop stuff. We make uh, wheelie bins, which is how we manage our garbage trash. <laughs> um, <laughs> if I say something that's very South African, just let me know so I can switch to the American word. Um, a lot of agricultural produce crates uh, switching from, from wood to plastic pallets, which actually has better overall life cycle goals. Um, we're doing quite a bit of work at the moment about what sort of the overall carbon footprint is of a certain packaging format, because we found there's knee-jerk reactions that sort of switch quickly from plastic to glass. But glass is quite regional in the recycling um, because it has to go into a furnace and there's not that many furnaces all over the place. And it's a very expensive um, packaging format to transport as colored. Um, so yeah, we, we very much um, enhance producer responsibility, circular economy. Uh, we've got a big uh, renewable energy drive. We're almost 20% of our total demand installed capacity in terms of solar. And we've also got liberalization of the energy markets. Um, at the moment, we've got one state-owned entity that's uh, generation transmission and distribution, um, but that's busy changing at the moment. So yeah, that's, that's, that's sort of South Africa. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, no, and, you know, I, I thought about mentioning the circular economy, but I thought I'm throwing too much stuff at you. So I'm so glad you raised that. <laughs> well, that's what we want to have happen here. So anybody else who wants to talk about what they're doing through their business uh, that's relevant, please come forward. Uh, I'd like to hear that. Uh, Nicholas, could you share, you know, from what you're hearing, what, what are you thinking about? Mm, sure. So, I mean, my name is Niklas. I work for a company called Sysergy Plasmonics, which is here in Houston. Uh, we're working with uh, like hydrogen, uh, ammonia, and a little bit of natural gas as well for some of our, for some of what we're doing. <clears throat> I guess I would say one thing that I, I'm thinking about a bit is in, in, what, with, in what cases is um, the pursuit of perfection. So for example, let's say completely green uh, getting in the way of, of like actually really good solutions that do cut high, uh, carbon down quite significantly. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's one of the things that I kind of have on my mind with regard to energy transition. Interesting. Maybe, uh, Maybe Mariana, would you? What's that? I guess I would say maybe Mariana, maybe you'd care to comment on that, what you see on, on, on your, your level. On, um, are you talking about hydrogen? What aspect of what you were? Yeah, as an example, uh, hydrogen, but also different solutions. I mean, um, we're seeing a lot, I think, especially from Europe, maybe just a very strong focus on uh, completely green with a ex large, ex um, large uh, expectation that price of um, renewable energy will go down, maybe to levels that we don't quite see them going to. Um, and so I don't know if that's quite so appetizing in the United States, for example, as it seems to maybe be in, in Europe. So, yeah, these are some of the things that are going through my mind. 
Well, and, well, you know, I guess if you, you're making hydrogen out of um, renewables, not only does the cost of the electrolyzers need to come down because that's a fairly new technology, but it's the power costs in general that's going to be two thirds of the cost. So what is what do renewables cost? And we've probably gotten most of the learning um, in um, solar and, and wind that we're going to get. And now I worry about the metals costs going up. They have lots of metals in them. So, I mean, there's, there's no perfect solution to anything. Um, but hydrogen makes a lot of sense for, you know, a lot of people talk about it for transportation. I think it makes more sense for using for industry, for hard to decarbonize industries, because those industries tend to be concentrated in specific locations like the Gulf Coast, where you don't have to move the hydrogen very far. You don't, so you don't need to build a completely new infrastructure, which is really what makes hydrogen for transportation very difficult. So, I mean, I think hydrogen has a huge potential in the Gulf Coast because you have people who make hydrogen, you have people who use hydrogen. I mean, there's a basic network of you know, producers and consumers already in existence. Plus a lot of those natural gas pipelines can, be, can and probably will at some point be converted to running hydrogen. So I would like to see someone do an inventory of all the natural gas pipelines in the United States and see what it would take in terms of cladding or whatever to make them transferable to uh, using uh, hydrogen in them or whatever fuel we decide to, you know, low carbon fuel we decide to create. Interesting. So any other questions for Marianne? Marianne, while they're thinking about it, how, how are you actually involved yourself in this transition? What are you doing? Well, the biggest thing I've done uh, for the last probably three years since I retired from uh, working in the oil industry and moved to New Mexico is I have three different jobs, one in Norway, one in Dallas, and one in New York City, and I do them all remotely. And in fact, I hardly even go into downtown Santa Fe. I mean, I just don't, I don't go anywhere. <laughs> so I am, my, my carbon footprint has really been great. And this actually happened before even COVID. I just, you know, got used to living online. So that's, that's a big thing I do. But another thing I do more professionally is um, I am I've on a personal crusade against gas flaring in the upstream oil industry. So at one point, right before COVID, I gathered a group of CEOs and regulators and NGOs and pipeline CEOs in, in a room in Austin and to talk about how we're gonna reduce gas flaring in the industry. And we, we, we spent the entire day locked in a room together and we were really starting to make progress and then COVID came along so we couldn't meet again. But you know, subsequently the, uh, the Permian producers said they would stop routine gas flaring by 2030, excuse me. It really does not take that long. So, I mean, we need to move that commitment up. And there have been some country, companies like Apache who actually has already stopped routine gas flaring. Now, admittedly, it's much harder in a place like the Bakken where there isn't much pipeline infrastructure and much use for the gas. But certainly in the Permian, we should not be doing <clears throat> routine gas flaring. So that's been my personal windmill that I've been attacking. Awesome. And I've commented on government regulations and for New Mexico and at federal government, BLM regulations. So I've, I've sort of been active in that space. Thank you for doing that. I've got one more question. How could large scale green hydrogen affect water scarcity and the allocation of water resources? 
You know, it's interesting because I've asked this question to many people. I'm not a technical person, I'm an economist. So I've asked this question, just how much water do, do these use? And people assure me, and the, the question I asked for technical people was in California, can California really do this because water is scarce? And they didn't seem to think it took that much water. And I guess ultimately you can you know, use desalinization. Now, of course, if you're desalinizing uh, water, you're actually using more energy probably than you're creating. But you know, that's, that's a technology that I think we need to work on you know, in general, because water scarcity is a big issue. But I keep hearing from technical people that water is not going to be a limiting factor. I mean, I'm skeptical like you are, but again, I'm not a technical person. I can't really uh, answer that. I haven't figured out how many of these plants will have and how much water they'll use versus a specific place. But I, it makes sense to put these, place, these plants in places that have lots of water. Like Houston comes to mind. Water is not a problem in Houston. So, you know, place them in places that make sense. Well, thank you. Anybody have any final questions or comments they'd like to make, whether it's uh, Angel, if it's you, or, or Grant, or Rick, or Eric? Anybody have any final comments before we're going to ask uh, Marianne to leave her, her final thoughts? Hello, John. This is Rick. Yeah, Rick. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm really technically challenging myself off working on a phone for this call, but it's great. I'm learning so much. Um, but I, I think Marion did a great job on it. Uh, and I sent something on the chat. So Marion probably knows about this too, but there's, you know, there's funding. They're looking at setting up four hubs in the U S and, and dealing with the, uh, hydrogen um, strategically on innovation and that type of thing. And I don't know if anybody else has worked on them. I'm involved in the one I'm volunteer involved in the one in the Southeast. Um, but I'm seeing if there's any feedback she might have or anything in regards to those hubs um, or technology centers they're trying to establish. Well, as I said earlier, I think hubs are important. Put them in places where you have a lot of the, the, lab, the labor or technical labor who understands these things, plus the resources. Um, the production of hydrogen, the pipeline infrastructure. So a hub from, from many different points of view makes sense. Uh, also a place to develop technology and share ideas where you have a lot of technical people in one place. And you know, Houston and the Gulf Coast to me is, is probably one of the better places where you actually have lots of engineers who, who, who really do understand these things and how much water these plants actually take. So. Um, you know, I, have, I haven't been involved in that in any way, but it, it makes so much sense to me. And I think that's a great way if, you know, for the Department of Energy to spend its money. I think it's a great way to spend money. Well, thanks, Rick. And uh, that's going to have to be the last word. Thank you, Marianne. So, folks, how was the conversation today? How was the discussion today? Just dropped the survey link, the FTE survey. It takes about 30 seconds. Please fill that out and let us know. We are obviously trying to improve ourselves every day. Uh, are you or somebody you know, a thought leader, who wants to test, try the current challenge, get some new ideas, and help others learn and connect faster? Well, our call for experts is always open, so please let us know. And so is our call for new annual members and show underwriters. You want to learn more about the benefits and be part of transforming the vision to community? Please let us know. We'll follow up with you. FTE is growing fast because of you. Keep sharing. Keep sharing FTE by inviting other leaders that you want to network with. 
and by checking out our on-demand library of experts and connect with them via video or podcast. And next on the FTE show, expert trader Matt Negard is going to share his experience and he'll lead a discussion around the challenges of managing a personal cryptocurrency portfolio, cryptocurrency. Uh, you're not going to want to miss it, so register right now on our website at fte.network. Folks, we're out of time. Thanks once again, Marianne. It was amazing. And all of you for making time to connect and learn on From the Experts. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next time.